0: Well, Happy Easter. Uh, You know, let me just admit right away that I was not looking forward to this weekend at all. You know, quote unquote Christian holidays get very old for me. I don't just live them every 365 days like Groundhog Day. I live them this year five times this year. I've had five Easter's this year. In fact, I, I look back as long as I've been in Cincinnati when we moved, Libby and I moved here to help start the, this church. And I've had 45 Easter's in 13 years. That's a, that's a lot of Easter's. It's, it just comes coming common, coming and coming. And I have to admit that come into this and going, man, I just thought I talked about that. Really? Again? And so I tried to get myself motivated for this. And in the light of things that have been happening in our country, there's all kinds of things that sort of get you down. I saw a Frontline special a couple weeks ago on the national debt and they showed this graphic that I found intriguing and depressing. National debt is a percentage of GDP uh, at the end of World War II relative to where it is right now. And it's going higher, higher, and it should equal that by the time we're done uh, having all of our stimulus plan happen with us. That's some intense stuff here. You also layer onto that baby boomers retiring and starting to draw from Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid. There's a lot of uncertainty financially. Time magazine a couple weeks ago had this phrase said, reset, hit the reset button. As in it's never going to be the same again, at least according to this article right here. Perhaps part of the upside of the financial crisis that we've been in is just the good old-fashioned ability to have a job is valued. Jobs are now seen as an asset versus something that are just uh, an assumption you're going to have, but you need to have something bigger that's growing. Man, it's a blessing just to have a job. But as I'm wrestling with these things, I'm thinking about my life over the last 12 months, since last Easter, uh, had... People have awful ends to their lives, been involved in some very, very difficult funerals. People close to me have a marriage breakup, seen some own rough spots within my, uh, within my marriage. It's a variety of things. I'm going, OK, now Easter, how does Easter relate to all this? And I actually found myself getting pretty excited today because I was stunned and hit in a fresh way again to realize that Easter is about God making things very simple for us. Him coming down and getting on our level. Really, if there's a God, really. Does God really expect us to go out and have some spiritual quest and go to read every spiritual guru and library and this and that and have all kinds of differing opinions? Is He really that convoluted? Really? Is He really that convoluted? Or could He be as simple as Easter says it is? You know, if I'm talking with you and I find out that you're an accountant, I'm going to want to kind of work in some Excel spreadsheet conversation. I'm going to want to talk your language, talk your anality. If I find out you're an accountant. If, um, if I'm interact with somebody who likes athletics, I'm going to talk athletics. I'm going to kind of play the jock side of me a little bit. When I'm interacting with kids, you know, what do you do? You get down on their level. You want to relate with them. And you look in their eyes. God, the story of Easter, is that He came down and got on our level. He wanted to dummy proof it. He took on flesh, came as a person, lived a sinless life, died a death that rebellious people like I deserve. And then just to prove it, he conquered death. He actually walked through death. Now as I'm revisiting this stuff, some of this is old, some of this is new, some of this is transformative. I want to walk through a process I went through myself this last week. Because we're looking at the resurrection story, the literal and historic resurrection of Jesus. We need to say, can we rely on anything that we see in the Bible as actually true to history? Maybe I don't believe it. Maybe Jesus was wrong. But how confident can I be that He actually said it? Because really, we have no original manuscripts. We don't. In fact, we have no original manuscripts of anything that is ancient. All we have is copies that were then created after oral transmission took place, um, you know, they, they would talk about things and eventually somebody would write them down. This is the way it was with everybody in the ancient world. And you compare how Jesus' writings and his teachings were preserved through manuscripts. It's pretty impressive. Here's a little graph that I looked at a few weeks ago. and look at it again. Plato, Aristotle, Homer and the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, the four authorized biographies of Jesus as found in the New Testament portion of the Bible. You can see that we don't have any, any original copies of any of these people. But the earliest copy you have and the more copies, the better. In fact, you would rather, you would rather have multiple copies than only one original, because if you only had one original, you couldn't be certain whether or not that was an original. But when you have multiple, you can compare and contrast. So look at this, Plato, time span between the earliest copy and when he actually wrote, 1,200 years, seven copies. Aristotle, 1,400 years, 49 copies. Homer, the Iliad, 500 years and 643 copies. The Gospels, 75 year time span, 5,500 copies, and they are 99.5% in agreement on everything. Nobody goes around wondering whether or not Plato existed. You don't see any PBS specials on that, do you? No one goes around wondering whether or not Aristotle, we can be confident that we know what he taught. Nobody reads the Iliad and says, yeah, but really, that's really not what happened. We take it at face value. Yet when it comes to the works to talk about Jesus, we check our brain to the door. We leave all of historical studies behind and we think that we don't have enough. Man, 5,500 copies, that's crazy, utterly crazy, unprecedented documentary evidence as we read this today to realize what actually is here is actually what they talked about. Maybe we don't believe it, but it's actually here. Not only that, as we read the Bible and we look at today, we're going to find that there is brutal honesty in the manuscripts, brutal honesty in these manuscripts. Details that simply don't make sense. Details you think, why would you put that in there if you're trying to convince me of a certain spirituality? Why would you say that? That doesn't make sense. You see, the Bible's not concerned of making an ironclad case that makes it that these people were smart. Actually, we see the people who are close with Jesus oftentimes looking like buffoons and simpletons. Uh, We really do. They they just have problems. Now, as we look at all this today, I want us to ask ourselves, why are we here on Earth? What what is our purpose? What's the point of life? you ever wonder that? Is the point of life just to endure through another recession? I was reading Bobo's in Paradise a while ago. Very stupid name of a book, but actually a very interesting book. And in this book, Bobo's in Paradise, they talk about how um, We're all looking for meaning in our work. And they quote John Seely Brown, who is the chief scientist of Xerox and also the head of the Palo Alto Research Center, which is arguably the, the most cutting edge group of people that's defined technology in America. And they quote him as something all of us aspire to in our own normal day to day lives. He says that the job today is not just to make money, but to make meaning. That's what we want today. We don't want to just produce widgets. I want to know, as I do this widget, is it helping anybody in South Africa? We don't want to just have a teaching job. We want to know, is it meaningful? Is anybody changing? We want to know, is there something substantive about my life? And what we want to learn from Easter is yes, your life is of such substance that you were included in a grand narrative of the greatest thing that's ever happened in the history of the world. 2,009 years, roughly after Jesus walked the earth, we date time by Him and people are all all over the world talking about this very topic. Nobody else in all of history has a day where everybody on all corners of the globe are talking about the literal, physical, historical resurrection of Jesus. It is amazing. And yet we see some of his early followers didn't understand that they're a bit thick. The amazing thing about this story is that the people who told it all died because they believed it. They died. They didn't get riches out of it. They didn't get, fame. well, they get fame. I guess we know about them today. But they had painful, awful deaths. They didn't get riches. They had major pain. And they're seen really as looking like simpletons, like they don't really get it. I was looking on MSNBC and one of the headlines that jumped out on me on the Web page was this one. Who was the historical Jesus? And they quote this professor saying, certain details of Jesus' life simply don't fit with idealized notions of a Messiah. He's baptized by John the Baptist, a lesser figure, according to the Gospels. He addresses women in his teachings and through his actions. He, he's from a backwater town. There are aspects that seem to speak to the historical figure of Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth. See, if you're going to create a novel where you want people to believe, you're going to make the founders look smart, look great, look profound. Instead, they they look like they're just not getting it. Let's look at what happens when Jesus comes back from the dead. What happens when the first people are on the scene at the empty tomb? It says this in Luke 24. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. And in their fright, the women bowed down. These are angels. The women bowed down with their faces to the ground. But the men said to them, Why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here, he's risen. Remember how He told you while He was still with you in Galilee, the Son of Man must be delivered over to the hands of sinners, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. Then they remembered His words. Uh, This is an unexplainable resurrection. It's another reason why I believe this resurrection is, is unexplainable. And there is brutal honesty in the midst of this resurrection story. Women are the first ones on the scene. If you're trying to concoct a story to make people believe, you don't have women be the first ones on the scene. Women in the first century Judaistic world were seen not as second-class citizens, but as second-tier human beings. By law, they couldn't give testimony if you're a woman in a court of law. I always kind of shake my head when I hear about things about lost Gospels, like these conspiracies for You know, these books of the Bible that should have been included. You ought to read one of them sometime. They're pretty crazy. One of them that's touted as being one of the lost gospels is the Gospel of Thomas. And in it, it quotes Jesus as saying, Unless a woman becomes a man, she can't go to heaven. So, unless a woman gets testicles, she can't go to heaven. That's exactly what it says. Well, not the testicle. I'm kind of putting that in there because anytime you can say testicle on Easter, it's a fun thing. But he he, he says, unless that happens, can't become a man. That's crazy. Nothing about Jesus' life would indicate that he would ever say that. He had women around all the time and thought highly of them, defended them. That is ridiculous. And yet, yet here we see. Well, they weren't lost Gospels. They were discarded and not read Gospels. This is why this doesn't make sense that you have women, the first to stand. It's just recording history. It's just recording what happened. See, right now, if you came in here late today, there's a whole bunch of things that I really can't prove to you that you might want prove. Some of you go, man, well, just prove to me. Prove to me that Jesus came back from the dead. Prove it. I can prove that in the same way that I can prove that there was a band up here that you didn't see if you came here late today. See, how would I prove that? I don't have a videotape to show you. I don't have DNA evidence to give you. But you would have to hear the eyewitness account of the hundreds that were here that could tell you what happened. And everybody would have a bit of a different perspective because somebody's eye would be drawn to this little dinky piano here that Andrew is playing. Oh, what is that thing? And we've been focused on that. People over here perhaps would have been drawn to Craig and wondering that guitar is beat up, why he's doing that. And some of us, some of them would talk about the, the drum that was being you know, beat like an old band drum. And somebody would talk about the guy up here, Greg, with his thing and, and this little accordion. Everyone would have a different perspective. There would be eyewitness testimony, but you could piece it together to conclusively prove in court. And this is the way that the resurrection has to be approached. There wasn't empirical scientific data for this. But we can arrive at truth on this the same way we do anything in the ancient world or the same way we do with things today. And yet there was an empty tomb. Yet there was. Yet people still worship this Jesus who wasn't found in the tomb. And all the Romans had to do, all the Jewish authorities who wanted Jesus killed, all they had to do was produce a body. That's all they had to do was simply produce a body. A body has never been produced. Produce a body and everybody gets their way. The most powerful nation in the history of the world at its apex of power couldn't preserve this or keep Jesus from coming back from the dead or produce a body. Why? Because I believe he literally and historically came back from the dead as only God could. Now, here's some theories that you could have to to not believe this. Let me just talk about them because these theories are talked about in various ways. And I'll just kind of make a couple comments about them. The first way to account that there's no body of Jesus is uh, what's called the con and conspiracy theory. What I'll call the con and conspiracy theory. That is, the disciples were a bunch of con men, con women, and they had a conspiracy uh, to make Jesus' name known forever. The problem with that is con men tend to be intelligent and con men get something out of it. These guys, all they got out of it was death. One of the 12 disciples killed himself immediately. His name was Judas, traitor. Of the 11 that were left, only one died in the old age of natural causes. Others, like Peter, were crucified, hung upside down on a cross. Others were tied to horses and horses sent in different directions. Others were stuck inside of animal skins, rolled up, set out, set out in the sun. All these according to uh, traditions that are handed down. Um, What do they get out of this? But yet they wouldn't recant. They wouldn't recant. And thousands of people died on crosses after this. All they had to do was recant. Why wouldn't they recant? It's because they saw the guy that would say, no, we saw him. Or if I didn't see him, my brother did, my sister did, a friend who I understand doesn't lie, did. I can't recant, recant it. He's had an impact in my life. Luke 24, 13 to 21 continues on the story. It says this. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. This is debriefing why this tomb was empty. And as they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them named Cleopas asked him, are you only a visitor to Jerusalem and do not know the things that have happened here in these days? What things, he asked? About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. They're saying we had hoped he was the one who's redeemed Israel. We were hoping he was the Messiah, but now we know he's not the Messiah. Why? Because messiahs aren't supposed to die. <laughs> There's a lot of messiahs in the first century. In fact, if you're lucky, on a good day in the atrium, you'll find a messiah or two. They're out there, believe me. Crazy people come around here once in a while. But as soon as you die, it shows that you're not the Messiah. You're not from God because you are mortal. So they're disbelieving it themselves. They're saying, I have doubts. I don't think that Jesus was who He was. And actually they're talking with Jesus and they don't recognize Him. Now why is this? This is strange. Again, why would a strange thing be included? Because it happened. Why would they not recognize Jesus? Well, two possibilities. One is Jesus could have had a different aura about him as he came back from the dead physically. There could be something there. But the other thing is, I think that these guys were uh, falling prey to uh, what I call mannispantrious disease. Um, I, I, I'm afflicted with the disease that comes with being a man, um, and I have pantreas disease. pantreas disease is when you're a man and you look in a pantry and you can't find what is actually there. <laughs> Now like i described it. Does anybody else have Manus Pantreas disease? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah Manus pantry. Here, here's how this works. I say I want to go get some peanut butter. So I go to the pantry and I have a picture in my mind of where the peanut butter is, what shelf, what it looks like. And I go and I look, I'm like, there's no peanut butter. <laughs> so I, I even think to myself, I think, Man, I, maybe this is just a, a bout of Manus Pantreas. Maybe I just ought to take some time and, and just scan all the shelves just scan them all and just use my creative powers to think where else it could be. And then I can't find it. Honestly, this happens all the time. And then the next thing you do is you say, Lib, hey Lib, where's the the peanut butter? We don't have any peanut butter. She said, we have some. She comes down and said, here it is. He pulls out the peanut butter right in front of my face. Like, oh gosh. (laughs) Now what happens? Here's what happens. For guys, and this is probably what happened with the disciples, I'm thinking, when I want peanut butter, I'm thinking what what shelf it's on and what it looks like. So if it is one shelf higher and six inches over and has a red top instead of a blue top, I really can't see it. Why? Because I'm not expecting it. I'm not expecting that. The disciples are not expecting to see Jesus again. So they're sort of just seeing right through Him. These guys aren't showing anything of being cons who are trying to lead a conspiracy. You would have crafted the documents to be entirely different. So you say, well, maybe it's one of the other theories. Another one is roughly called what I'll call the faint and flee, faint and flee. This is to say that Jesus was crucified, but He didn't actually die on the cross. He fainted uh, and then they took Him off the cross And he fled, faint and flee. This has a number of of problems with it. Even though, um, you know, some people are making good money selling novels off this—the idea that Jesus fainted and then fled to France. Of course, you would go to France, right, where good wines are and women, and have like secret, (laughs) secret like kids, and then you make money. You know, that—that's kind of the way it works for novelists today, trying to make this actually true. It's crazy, crazy. Rome, Rome. When they when they killed you, you stay you stayed killed. They know how to make you dead. They perfected the art of crucifixion, the worst way to ever die. In fact, this theory used to be called and still is called in some circles the swoon theory, that Jesus fainted, put inside of a tomb, all of a sudden He revived, pushed the rock away and then escaped to France or wherever. The Journal of the American Medical Association looked at this a number of years ago to say, what does the medical evidence say? Not opinions, medical evidence about how somebody could survive crucifixion. How come someone could deal with being whipped on the back by a leather cat of nine tails? And they diagrammed this in the Journal of the American Medical Association with bone and glass and wood. And what would happen if you were beaten 39 times and your back was just shredded, pulling off flesh? And what would happen if you had nails taken through your wrists and your feet putting together and a nail put through your foot and then put up on a cross sunk into a hole, your bones dislocating, and then just make sure you were dead, taking a spear and sticking it in your rib. And when that happens, water and blood gushing out. Could somebody survive that? And in conclusion, in this article they said this. Clearly the weight of historical and medical evidence indicates that Jesus was dead before the wound to his side was inflicted and supports the traditional view that the spear thrust between his right ribs probably perforated not only the right lung, but also the pericardium and heart and thereby ensured his death. Accordingly, interpretations based on the assumption that Jesus did not die on the cross appear to be at odds with modern medical knowledge. Again, we're doing this simply because there was never a body produced which needed to happen and should have happened to quell the rumors and the movement that was going to overtake the Roman Empire and overtake the world. Faint and flee, doesn't make sense. Not palpable. Another, another idea is I'll call it and Dogs. The ditch and Dogs Theory. This, this says that Jesus did die, but then after He died, what would, what people would do is they would just take the person off, take the corpse off of the cross, throw it in a ditch by the side of the road and dogs would come and devour the body, devour the remains so you would have you know, nothing left to show. And part of this is ground on historicity because dogs were mangy varmints that uh, were not living in houses. You didn't have like nice little cute Fido up in your lap or anything like that. These were mangy animals in this culture that just roamed, roamed the countryside and just looked for things to eat. The problem with it is in believing that the Romans would cast down a body just on the side of the road. First of all, they're coming into and out of their great city. They would crucify people right outside the gates as a a deterrent to crime so they could see what they were getting into when they came into a city that they were occupying. And when they were leaving, not only that, but this is Holy Land. This is Holy Land. This is the Jews' holy land. To put a body and allow it to be out in the open rotting is completely against everything we know about the the setting of that day. The first century, Josephus was a history, a Jewish historian in the first century. He has a bunch of things that we can read today. He wasn't a Christ follower, but nonetheless, he gives a lot of insights into how the culture operated in the first century. And he is quoted in one of his writings as saying this. We must furnish fire, water and food to all who ask for them, point out the road, not leave a corpse unburied and show consideration even to declared enemies. Not leave a corpse unburied. Why, why is that? There's a lot of things that we do today that we don't realize has biblical roots. You know, we bury people. And we say things like ashes to ashes, dust to dust. That's biblical imagery that a lot of us don't have the understanding of. I'm not going to go into that right now. But some of the things that we do as cultural things are rude in the Bible, but we've lost the meaning. So when we put somebody in the grave, um, and again, I've had a couple of these this last year that have been very difficult for me. As we put somebody in the grave, and I officiated at a service like that. People refer to this as a um, you know, final resting place. It's sort of serene. Yes, it is in our cultural understandings. But we've been burying people for a long time. And it started back in, uh, in the Jewish world coming out of the Scriptures. And it wasn't at all for final resting place. It wasn't for, uh, for sanitiz- sanitization purposes to keep rotting things away. It was because the Jews could not have anything rotting on the land which was holy so as to defile the land. The land was seen as holy, specifically the Holy Land, Jerusalem. And anything that was rotting or carcass was seen as defiling the land so they would bury it. That's why Josephus says even our enemies we bury, not because we want to honor their memory, but because we want to honor the land and put them in the ground. It's why there's records of priests going out to battles that Romans were in and actually burying Roman officers as their priestly duty, not because they want to respect them, but because even these mortal enemies of theirs, they need to be put under the ground so as to preserve the integrity of the ground. So to think, to think that... A Jew, Jesus, a Jew, Jesus, would be allowed to be cast on the side of the road and rotting outside of the Holy City in the Holy Land and the Jews are taking it. It's ridiculous only that we have Joseph of Arimathea who gives the tomb, who in all likelihood is not a rich benefactor, but in all likelihood on the council, on the Jerusalem council that had a hand in making sure that Jesus was done away with and as his responsibility would have been providing a place for burial. Ditches and dogs makes no sense at all in the cultural context that we know for sure of that time. What's that leave me with? A bunch of other little ones I can look at. These are the most popular and perhaps most plausible. It comes down to, man, could it really be that God wanted to dummy proof this thing and say, I want to make sure you get me. When you look at Jesus, you know me. When you understand what my character is, I'm going to paint it for you in a form you understand in a language you can appreciate. And not only that, I'm going to come and I'm going to live perfectly. I'm going to love you and I'm going to die for you. I'm going to die for all of your gossip, all of your sin, all of your greed, all of all of, uh, all of the, your, sexual, your sexual hang-ups, your things that you've done that you wish you could forget, the things you've done that hurt people, there needs to be justice for it. I'm actually going to take the hit for that because that's how loving I am while satisfying justice and just to show you that I'm powerful, death's not going to conquer me. I believe that Jesus was God and this is the most glorious thing that ever happened. God and glory. God actually suspended the natural laws. I know this is crazy. Of course this would take a miracle. That's why miracles happen very rarely. But God can suspend the natural way of things. That Jesus, if He was God, as I believe He was, literally and historically came back from the dead. People saw Him and gave their life for this. And we can examine this and we can see this today. Other Legal minds have examined this and said, well, what if you tried this in a court of law? Legal minds such as Simon Greenleaf, who was one of the founders of the Harvard uh, School of Law and actually still is an authority on what is admissible to court. People like uh, Sir Lionel Lacu, who is, according to the Guinness Book of World Records, the most successful attorney in the history of the world. He had 245 successful, successive court cases, 245. He was knighted by Queen Elizabeth II twice. He was also ambassador to numerous countries because he was thought of so highly. And he came to a spiritual crisis in his life and said, if this is true, that Jesus actually came back from the dead, that changes everything about my life. It gives me meaning. It gives me something to live for. It gives me forgiveness. It gives me a whole new set of lenses to look at. And this is the defining thing in all of human history. I need to get underneath this. And so he examined it from a lawyer, truth finding perspective. And here's what he said I say unequivocally, the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ is so overwhelming that it compels acceptance by proof, which leaves absolutely no room for doubt. Luke 24, verse 42, the story continues. They gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and ate it in their presence. And he said to them, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, in the Psalms. This is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead and on the third day in repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. You were witnesses of these things. Jesus says, I am fulfilling everything in the Scriptures, everything, everything of the Law, the Prophets and the Psalms. Those are the major categories in the Jewish Scriptures or also in the Old Testament portion of the Bible. And He says, I am fulfilling what has been predicted. I am so fascinated by our fascination with Nostradamus or other people like that, we're just so fascinated by prophecies and what could it mean? Why, right under our nose is the greatest string of prophecies that have ever been fulfilled in the history of the world. See, there were prophecies about what the Messiah was to look like. One of the prophecies actually said He would come into the temple. The temple was destroyed in 70 A.D., So the Messiah had to have come before 70 A.D., can't come again. There are dozens of prophecies that are written hundreds and even a thousand years before Jesus ever walked the earth. And He fulfills all of them. I can't tell you the exact number because when I say dozens, some people say, well, that's not really a prophecy. That's sort of a saying. But there are a bunch, 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 bunch. I'll read you one little section of one of these prophecies. that comes from King David's pen. Psalm 22 says this. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joints. My heart has turned to wax. It's melted within me. My mouth is dried up like a pot shirt, and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Dogs surround me. A pack of villains encircles me. If they pierce my hands and my feet, they pierce my hands and my feet. All my bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among them and cast lots from my garment." Now, this is just a scene from the crucifixion. There's other prophecies about being born in Bethlehem where he was. There's other prophecies about things that he did and said amazing things. This is just a scene from the the crucifixion. And here's the amazing thing. It's defining and describing crucifixion, no question, but piercing hands and feet. Crucifixion wasn't even invented when this was in the Bible. Crucifixion was invented for hundreds of years after when David was talking about this. The Romans had not come on the scene and invented crucifixion yet. And yet it's detailed exactly how Jesus was to die, even down to gambling for His garments, gambling for possessions at the foot of the cross. This is crazy. I know a guy who uh, used to work for the Chicago Trib- Tribune. His name is uh, Lee Strobel. Has written some books. And he said, if I just applied... My abilities to decide facts. How could I know that these prophecies line up to Jesus? What's the likelihood that anybody else could have, uh, could have done these prophecies? And he went out and he got a team of mathematicians to look at the mathematical probability of any one person fulfilling just eight, forget dozens, just eight, any one person fulfilling eight of the prophecies where to be born, how to die, the kind of family, the, the resurrection, just on and on, eight of them. And he found the, the chances that one person could fulfill just eight of these Old Testament prophecies was 1 in 10 to the 17th power. That is 1 in 10 with 17 zeros on the other end of it. Don't go to Argosy on those, on those odds. You know, one, <laughs> 1 in 10 to the 17th power. What's that look like? Oh, it would look like if I had a little tile here, inch and a half by an inch and a half tile. Seen those? Maybe those kind of tiles are on a lot of your bathroom floors. Let's say if I were to take that tile and I would tile this entire stage. In fact, I would tile the entire floor in this first level, the entire floor in the second level, entire floor in the third level. Go out into the out into the atrium. I tile the whole atrium, the parking lot. I'd actually go down Madison Road. I'd head over and tile all of Oakley. I'd head into Hyde Park, tile all of Hyde Park. Of course, the tile wouldn't be good enough for there. It'd have to be ripped up again. But let's say I just did it all in Hyde Park anyway. I went up. <laughs> got love, man. High Park jokes, they're good. I even lived there for a while and live right beside there. Anyway, go all the way, all the way in Hyde Park, went all the way into O'Brienville, all the way down Walnut Hills, all the way into Cincinnati. I, I tiled all of Cincinnati, all the bridges going into Kentucky. And actually, before I go over there, I did all of Ohio all of New York, all of Canada, all everything north. I went down to Kentucky, did the entire United States, headed down to Mexico, Mexico, Central America, down into South America. Then I got a bunch of cargo planes. I hauled tile all over the world. I I tiled Tiananmen Square. I tiled outside where Eskimos were doing their business. I tiled the entire, entire world. And then I came to you and said, on one tile, On one tile, I put a red dot on the bottom of one tile. And I'm going to give you unlimited credit card for fossil fuels. And I'm going to let you travel all over the world, everywhere. Go, go, go. But here's the catch. I'm only going to let you bend down and pick up one tile. The chance that that one tile would have that red dot is the same chance that Eight prophecies could be fulfilled by one guy. And Jesus fulfilled dozens. Dozens. They were all there. All there, all learned. And yet the disciples didn't see it. And then all of a sudden they saw it. Stuff dropped away. Last week, as I started getting excited about Easter, I'm revisiting this stuff, learning new things. I'm like, oh, this is amazing. It's amazing. This gives me my life. This gives me hope for all of my difficulties. And even if my problems, your problems, don't get solved inside of 70 years, there is eternal hope. Jesus, God, conquers and will conquer everything that is not right in your life and in this world. He never gets ultimately defeated. And I'm getting fired up about this. And I went to a guy I played basketball with. I said, hey, man, um, Always feel uncomfortable when you do this. But you're like, you know, um, I don't know if you're going to church anywhere this weekend, but you know, you want to uh, come to Crossroads this weekend. And there's some guy who was sitting or standing close to me. Said, "Church," said, "You one of those television preachers?" You know, as if like I'm inviting somebody to hear this because I'm there's something in it for me. You know. I'm like, no, no, never been on television, never plan on being in television, nor do I plan on wearing a white belt, and eyeliner. No, I'm not planning on being a, you know, being some television. But that's a thought. Like, this is just like some convenient thing that you want other people to believe. No, I, I, I want you to have meaning. I think this is the greatest thing that's ever happened in the history of the world. It's when God broke into this world and changed everything, changed it all. And when they look back on these interactions with Jesus, when they finally come to their spiritual senses, in Luke 24, verse 32, they say, were not our hearts burning within us while He talked with us on the road and opened the Scriptures to us? Gosh, our hearts are burning. Maybe right now, your hearts are burning. Maybe your heart is. You're thinking, gosh, could this be true? Could this be the way out of my hopelessness? Could be the th- this be the way to understand God and to give me hope that transcends all of my problems. If your heart's burning within you or there's something going on, it may be that God has slowed you down to a point where you are willing to receive him as Savior, receive him as Messiah, receive him as God. See, the problem is our lives are so frenetic. We have so many pains and so many things to be stressed about that we never slow down to look at the eternal realities of the greatest thing that happened in human history. And God, that's what I'm thankful right now. I'm thanking that you have slowed us down. and I'm praying that you slow us down even more to see and receive. Help us go from this world to seeing the world the way it was meant to be.